I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Streets Ahead, a podcast dedicated to active travel, livable streets, and people-focused urban design. I'm Adam Tranter. I'm Laura Laker. And I'm Ned Bolting. And welcome to this, our 10th episode. Ten episodes, guys. How uh, how on earth did we? How on earth did we do that? Well, we started at one, and then it went to two, and we just uh, progressed yeah. through the series, <laughs> and now and now we've reached ten. I mean, if you really want to trumpet that as a massive milestone, then that's up to you, Adam. But I think we we only need to celebrate when we get to hundred, to be perfectly honest. Hold it's on, mo- last mo- episode, you got a very short memory, Ned, because last episode you're getting all excited. That's because I was hosting it. 10. That's because I was hosting it. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> Good, because I took you. all the glory for the 10th <laughs> episode. Brilliant. Um, well, no, I think, I think it's good. Um, and I think hopefully people are, um, people are still, uh, still listening, um, which is, uh, which is uh, good. Um, I'm really pleased based on Ned's suggestion, but also, you know, something we should all be super aware of, um, that we're doing a episode dedicated to the important topic of walking um, a uh, very essential part of the active travel mix and the general transport mix and something that's uh, sometimes uh, overlooked. Um, and I think, you know, it's very important to dedicate it the the space and the time that it deserves. Um, it's also a cautious reminder that um, when I was coming, trying to come up with names for this podcast, that it was nearly called uh, Talky Walky. Um, but we, uh, we thankfully, uh, did not go ahead, uh, with that and chose streets ahead instead, um, which is probably the best for, for everybody and our own dignity. I'm going to wipe that from my memory. <laughs> um, Laura, you, you, um, you are, uh, somebody that writes about, um, uh, walking and you are, you know, behind something called project pedestrian that you're the best first in the needs um, of uh, of the pedestrian, although I think we're all aware of what's needed. So, you you start us off with uh, w- with walking um, in the active travel mix. How does it all fit in, and what are the what are the arguments for it? Well, I think important to remember that everyone on any journey walks at some point, or is a pedestrian at some point, because obviously um, uh, the people who are wheelchair users who also use the uh, pedestrian uh, realm. But yeah, I think. It's it's super important. It's one of those things that's historically been overlooked. And um, I think someone described pedestrians in the transport mix as those kind of inconvenient, squishy objects that, that get in the way of uh, the motor traffic, which is the most important thing when we're designing roads. But ultimately, um, our walking environment shapes how we feel about our public space, I would say, um, because it's just so fundamental to being a human is just sort of moving around under your own steam. Um, also super important for uh, mental health and creativity. I, I always love the fact that Charles Dickens, whose writing I love, was a big walker. And so every day he would go out uh, after writing and just walk the streets of London. 
Um, and oh, Ned's got a book, Night Walks by Charles Dickens. There we go. Yes, brilliant. That's lovely. It's great. I didn't know about that book. Yeah, you should totally read it. It's uh, it's absolutely lovely. It describes oh just what you've um, outlined and that's exactly what he did and his observations of of London life, yeah. Yeah, and that's where he got a lot of his characters from and the descriptions of streets and yeah, I just love I always remember his description in A Tale of Two Cities, his description of the Parisian streets and all the cobbles that were almost designed to break an ankle and hmm. yeah, wonderful. And um Virginia Woolf as well, a big walker. Um and yeah, I think I think uh, yeah, just I, I love walking personally. A few years ago, I, I um I tried to pitch an idea for a book. I wanted to write a book about walking myself because it's something I I, I probably do more than cycling. To be perfectly honest, I mean I, it's just it's part of my part of everyone's life, isn't it? So it's like breathing. It's what you do. And I wondered out loud whether people had actually written. You know, I thought oh, I've discovered something here. I'm going to be the first person ever to write about walking um, because it wouldn't have occurred to anyone. <laughs> um, turns out I was completely wrong. And I, I did. I stumbled across. <laughs> stumbled across a fabulous book by a writer called Jeff Nicholson called The Lost Art of Walking, uh, which I really recommend. Um, it's a very easy, it's a kind of ruminative, explorative, kind of slightly meditative um, uh, book about uh, a middle-aged man, really, and, and his experiences of walking. Um, and also, and he's a very controversial writer, so I'm not expecting you to like him necessarily, but there's, a, there's a quite a fun book uh, written by Will Self. Uh, I, can't, mm. I can't remember, I can't remember what it, the title of it is. Oh, hey, there it is. Psych. Psychogeography, I think it's called. And ah. he walks from, he, he sets himself the, the task of walking from, I think he's got a flat in Brooklyn and he's got a house in Clapham in, 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 um, in London. And he wants to walk from his house to his flat. And he acknowledges that there's a, a bit in the middle of the journey where he probably has to get on a plane. Uh, <laughs> but he, he spends a day basically walking from Clapham to Heathrow Airport and arriving on foot. And then he gets to JFK the other side and walks from JFK to Brooklyn. And what's quite fun about that is that airports, um, like so much urban infrastructure, are simply not designed for people no. to walk up to them. You know, it's a nightmare of slip roads and kind of absences mm. of pavements and all that sort of thing um, amongst uh, yeah. everything else that he explores en route. It's a great, yeah. So there's lots of really good literature about, yeah. about, um, about walking. There's there's an interesting thing you just said there, Ned, about um, about the distances and airports, especially it 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 never occurred to me before um, before I got into like active travel. But you know, people who wouldn't say they do any kind of physical activity potentially, they quite regularly go and walk quite large distances uh, in when we quite create the environment for them. So airports is a good example, right? Like you know, when you've got 15 minute walk to get to the, to get to the gate that you're, you're in potentially. Um, also I think someone, I saw a map the other day on Twitter where someone had overlaid the footprint of the Merry Hill shopping center with the local community around it. And effectively, you know, that, that community is, has a high car usage and people using cars for short journeys. But actually when people get into Merry Hill, they might walk five or 10 kilometers over, over an afternoon. Um, and I remember Chris Borman saying about this with the Trafford Center as, you know, people, if we can get, make it convenient and get people, you know, yes, people are arriving by cars, but there's people that don't do any physical activity who quite happily walk very long distances if we make it attractive, appealing and have stuff that they want to see, um, around it. So I thought, I thought that was, um, I thought that was really interesting. And I guess, um, being a pedestrian is, as you say, something that we all do, um, but something that potentially isn't given as much thought, um, to as, 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 as other modes. And, and I think what you were saying, Laura, I, I've seen, and once you see this stuff, you can't unsee it, but at junctions, really, I know the Cyclops junctions just gone in, in, in Manchester, um, which will be great for pedestrians, but largely junctions are broadened out, aren't they? And they're, they're super wide. They create these kind of daunting distances to cross the road. And of course the, the, the curve, uh, curvature of the, um, of the angles for cars turning is done so they can turn as quickly as possible, which also makes it quite hostile for pedestrians. So, um, we've probably, you know, the system has largely like with cyclists or people on bikes as, as forgotten pedestrians, I'd say, was that accurate? Do you think? Yeah, and I don't think pedestrian. I don't think pedestrians kind of associate themselves as a group. Um, you just walk from where your house to the car or your house to the shops, and yeah, you don't necessarily have the identity that you do when you're kind of 
in the traffic as someone on a bike and you kind of end up feeling a little bit embattled sometimes. There's certainly, there's certainly no such thing as far as I'm aware as um, pedestrian Twitter, is there? You know, like, <laughs> like, like there obviously is with it's cycling so Twitter. You know, if you, if, you, if you say something vaguely out of line with cycling Twitter, you know all about it very quickly. There's a bit of a pylon effect true. with cycling Twitter, but pedestrians don't seem, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. They don't seem to identify as a group at all, really. There, there is this kind of two strands of, of it, similar to cycling there, I think, where you've got, uh, looking at the organisations, um, you've got the Rambler, uh, Ramblers Association, who, you know, as I, as I understand it, kind of, you know, is more towards rights of way and recreational um, walking. But then you've got things like uh, organisations like Living Streets who um, focus on kind of utility walking, uh, if you like, and the need to have our cities. So there's some similarities in there, but I remember when, um, uh, when we don't have kind of any famous pedestrians, um, do we? So I remember when, um, when people were talking about going Thomas calling for helmet compulsion, um, I was sort of a bit like, well, you know, asking Garrett Thomas about helmets is a bit like asking Mo Farah about pedestrian crossings. It's just, it's just not the same, <laughs> not the same thing. Um, and you know, I, I, th- I think that's probably one of the issues, isn't it? Is that we don't, there's no, you know, identity. It's something we all do, but there's only for the few groups I mentioned, there isn't this kind of group fighting for it, except for maybe some of the, the, the more progressive town and city planners who now understand it's the uh, it's the right thing to do to create nice areas for people to go and shop and things like that. There's also, I mean, we can drill into this with our, maybe some of our guests as well, or maybe something that you know a little bit about, Laura. There's a big, um, I think it's a big issue with the rural environment as well uh, and walking because um, you can't do it. I mean, so if, you know, if you take country lanes in the home counties or particularly built up parts of the countryside, um, by and large, as soon as you've left the little town or village, that, that's it. There's no pavement. And um, you're, you're just walking along single track lanes with cars coming at you doing 60 miles an hour. Yeah. Um, and, uh, That's right. I, I know this, I know this more from running actually, cause I, you know, if I'm out in the country, go for a run, it's a, I much prefer running in the city to running in the country, unless I can find a public footpath, you know, and that we, I think, I think the UK has got quite a good network of public footpaths actually, and as opposed to a lot of other continental neighbors who don't seem to have that kind of public right of way across, um, land that, that we do enjoy actually, but the, the roads, are really dangerous for pedestrians out in the country and no thought is given to them whatsoever, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's true. There was there was someone killed on a, a rural road this year that didn't have a pavement. Um, I've been, I've been um, logging pedestrian deaths on footways this year, which is a bit of a sad thing, but it's part of the, I don't know, part of some thinking around, you know, we talk about um, cycling deaths and there's always an element of blame around that. And, and I kind of wanted to look at the danger that cars pose to just someone that we could all identify with, i.e. someone just walking on a footway. Um, but yeah, I remember um, when I was when I was young and before I learned to drive, I grew up in the countryside. We used to walk uh, into the local town at, you know, in the winter, it would just be pitch black and you couldn't see your hand in front of your face and we're just sort of walking. <laughs> Didn't really know where we're going and it's like two miles with no pavements. But yeah, there isn't really that um, that kind of infrastructure in the countryside and country roads are so much more dangerous. Mm. Where, where I am, where I'm in Warwickshire, there's, um, there's a road near me that, that is very popular with people uh, on horses, people on bikes, uh, people walking. Um, it's also, you know, a 50 mile an hour zone uh, uh, as well. And it's just totally um, inappropriate to uh, to be so. And when we had the full lockdown where, you know, cars were a rare sight, you'd really see the kind of space on a country road being reclaimed back because there was such a desire for people to use it in all its different forms. And um, then when kind of cars came along, you know, they were, they were having to negotiate that, use their, use almost the same sort of planning and design we require in cities where people are maybe at 20 miles an hour and kind of giving way to pedestrians and things like that, um, which we could tell that people, it was something out of kilter there. People weren't expecting this to be the kind of environment. And the other thing that I noticed that um, I haven't got a massive opinion on it, other than I think it might link into Ned's point about the connections is um, how many people in the area that I, you know, it's literally half a mile from outside the town centre, this this country road, 
um, maybe a mile tops. And uh, people just, you know, drive there to walk. So, you know, the 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 the, the driving to, to to park in a in a layby and then um these people in cars park over the footway, the only footway on this country road. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that's also, also, uh, uh, another issue. And I, I don't want to confuse recreational walking with the kind of need of pedestrians in towns and cities, because I think that they're different things, but, um, there's certainly some of the same problems with inconsiderate parking and things like that. Yeah. And then one thing you've missed out, Adam, is your, is your new sport of speed walking. Um, mm. So we've got the we've got the pedestrian, we've got the reg- regular walking, and then rambling, but also you know the sport of walking. So, is speed walking a sport then? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's still it's still uh, an, it's still an Olympic thing, isn't it? The the mince, oh yeah that one so. the, mincing yeah, around yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, race walking race, race walking. <laughs> Which is, um, as far as I understand it, absolutely riven with cheating, isn't it? Because it, it, yes. it does it does literally depend on commissaires and judges watching to see if the, that one foot is always in contact with the tarmac, and if and if they're not yeah. watching you, you just you start running. Apparently, it's just <laughs> just what you do. <laughs> Larry. It is a nonsense. <laughs> let's not let's not in the same way that in the same way that our podcast when we talk about cycling shouldn't uh segue on to talking about the uh Doping. the 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 Olympics and Tour de France. That's we should true. probably not get too much into race walking. No, we we're probably should I just couldn't resist Adam a little bit out of our depth. after last time when we were talking when we were talking about walking speeds. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think people noticed, didn't they, during during lockdown that um there just isn't enough space for pedestrians. And I think that's one of the um one of the potential silver linings in terms of getting more support for pro pedestrian measures is we were all kind of rammed into like 1.2 meters of pavement, weren't we? And there were people walking, walking to abreast, bloody people walking to abreast, um, and, and, you know, people walking different speeds and things like that. And all that stuff like should just be totally fine. We should have an environment where all of those things are possible, but somehow we've got ourselves into a situation where we're kind of all, jousting for space on the footway um, while there's a two or four lane road by the side. So I think one thing I've kind of been uh, wary of, and Lloyd, especially welcome your thoughts on this, is as somebody who might describe themselves as a cycle campaigner, um, often I see, you know, conversations where cyclists and pedestrians are put in conflict with each other and therefore the issue becomes way more about, oh, I saw a cyclist on the pavement or, you know, this is, you're not sharing the road or, or whatever it might be. Whereas really the, 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 the kind of quite literal massive elephant in the room are these kind of metal boxes that we've given loads of space to where we're putting all our vulnerable citizens in one space in conflict and we're kind of letting everyone else get, get on with their business as usual. So to kind of articulate the ramble into a question, like what, what do we need to do to make, cycling and pedestrianism uh closer together and more allies than than potentially um seeing them as different things well if i were making the rules stop using stop doing shared space in busy pedestrian areas because that's just this is like putting people on bikes in uh on busy roads it's just bound to create conflict and those people that you get in in the cars who aren't considerate or don't understand the needs of people on bikes who overtake too fast you just get the same problem with pedestrians but the cyclists are the ones kind of um causing the stress so yeah just stop throwing people together i think in the in the netherlands and places you get kind of cycle roads that people walk on and that's that's okay in the countryside uh, because there's so such low traffic levels of uh, people on bikes and people on foot but yeah, I think it's just, you know, don't design in conflict is is the answer, basically. Um, and often cycling stuff benefits pedestrians and uh, it should always be about both. So it's not just a why are you spending money on people mm. on bikes? It's, you know, it's lower traffic streets, for example, are good for pedestrians too. Yeah, I think it's similar to the cycle lane end sign where, um, you know, we saw that um, planners have just practically given up. And I think shared usage paths are, are probably the same. Um, I, I also noticed that Highways England have like a really uh, in-depth, quite high quality cycle planning um, drawings and designs, um, but they only apply to cycle lanes and not shared usage paths. So the kind of the trick is to just put shared usage paths in and you don't really have to worry um, uh, uh, about anything. Um, 
I am very glad, just as I run out of total knowledge, um, that uh, that we're joined by two guests today uh, in order, being joined by Susan Claris uh, from the um, planning firm Arup, um, and then later Carmen Rendell, uh, who is a walking therapist. But um, first of all, welcome to you, Susan. Could you just tell us a little bit about um, your your role at Arup uh, and your, I guess, your relationship and passion for for, for walking and um, you know supporting pedestrians in, in planning? Yes, of course. Thank you. So, um, I trained as a transport planner, and I've been with Arup now for twenty seven years. Um, before that, I spent a few years with the Department for Transport, and sort of joined as a generalist transport planner. Spent many years doing parking studies and looking at highways and junction alignments and stuff like that. And it was it was seven or eight years ago in Arup that I. We, I was asked the question, our, our firm's motto is we shape a better world. And we had a session that says, okay, if we shape a better world, what does that world look like? And I said, it's a world where more people walk. Um, I didn't really expect people to take it that seriously then, but people then started thinking more about walking in a way they hadn't. And so, my passion for walking in a professional way grew from then, um, doing a publication called Cities Alive Towards the Walking World. And the more I talked about walking, actually, the more people found it interesting. Um, And it's great. I'm not the only one doing that, obviously. But walking, I think, has become far higher profile um, in the last few years. And um, also in recent years, I became a trustee of Living Streets, which is the UK charity for everyday walking. And very pleased to say I've just been made their vice president as well. Oh, so yeah, that's, thank you. That's sort of my my walking journey, and it's my mantra that I, I I have within work and and outside of work and with clients is that you know walking matters to to everything and to everybody. It's the the most basic form of transport, but I think the most important form of transport. And maybe it is because it is so basic, it get, gets overlooked. Um, and you've been, um, you've done some quite nice on social media. We're just talking about how there's no, there's no walking Twitter, but if there is, um, it's maybe you kind of, uh, flying the flag for walking in your, um, daily walks from home, your home working <laughs> and all the flowers that you see. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Cause it's quite nice. Yeah. We, we started that sort of the, the walking from home hashtag. And I think one of the, consequences of of lockdown is that people have been appreciating walking in a totally new way. And I think that's for all sorts of reasons. One, people's horizons have become far more local. They're exploring their walking environment in a way they hadn't done before. And it's actually become a highlight of many people's days, getting out for what was the daily walk now, now a couple of times a day. It's been helped by amazing weather that we've had. It's also been helped by what was the much lower levels of traffic. And so people were able to, you know, and, and having things like no aircraft. So all of a sudden the environment was so much quieter and people were noticing birdsong in a way they hadn't before. I think when people were walking the same walk every day, they were interacting with the environment in a different way and noticing flowers coming into, into, into flower and seeing how that changes. So I think it has given many people a real appreciation. And I've noticed people have said they've discovered walking routes in their area. They may have lived there for 10 years, 20 years. They've discovered paths they never knew about. So I think it has given people a whole appreciation. And yeah, I get out for my daily walk. And every time I try and see something different, sometimes it's a flower in someone's front garden. You know, sometimes it can be something really minor, but that that in itself become becomes a joy. Um, so yeah, it's been fun to share. I think Susan, a lot of people will I uh, completely nod along and identify with that experience that you've just outlined because I think we've all we, we've all noticed that and it's been wonderful. Um, but but setting COVID aside, uh, and if you look back at the last. I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years of kind of urban design and um, urban reality in particular. Um, Is there any evidence to suggest that more people are choosing to walk these short distances that they might have otherwise uh, used cars or buses or tubes for? I mean, you're talking about London, the underground, you know, there's famously that there's kind of, isn't it the most popular underground journey is something like Piccadilly to um, Covent Garden, which is a five minute walk, you know, but people don't really know that because they just look at the tube map and all that sort of thing. Was there, a, was there a shift in people's understanding of that? I mean, I'm thinking about the whole phenomenon of, um, I think this mostly applies to uh, women, female office, office workers, um, 
getting off trains and taking their uncomfortable office shoes in their in their hands or in their luggage and putting on walking shoes because they were doing a sort of that last distance to to th- that seemed to be a thing that just kind of came from America possibly or came from nowhere um, maybe maybe a decade or so ago and I wonder if it kind of like knits into a, 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 a an increase you know in in the sort of footfall literally. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the stats, about 25% of trips in London are walked. Um, So, 27 million trips in London a day, 6.7 million are walked. But that figure has been fairly constant um, for the last 10, 15 years. And that's the same for the national figures that are are collected by the Department for Transport. Um, So, there is more walking because Generally, there are the population is growing, and we're making more more journeys. But the proportions are not changing much on a national level. I think they are in small pockets um, where things are improving, and I think there's actually probably more evidence of that from places outside of the UK. Um, so, you know, some some places. But the, the one I always like talking about is is Pontevedra in northwest Spain. Um, they largely made the um, town of Pontevedra car-free around 1999. So, they've got 20 years of experience, whereas in many other places, it's been done more recently. So, there is data there that shows not only people are walking more, but for me, the real positives that their population is going up, particularly their childhood population, whereas the surrounding towns are experiencing population decline. You know, the economy is doing well. So, there's lots of positives around that. Um, so, I, I hope that with more space being given for walking, with people's love of walking during lockdown, some habits might start to change. And the footwear thing, yes, you're right. I remember, I think it was it was Working Girl um, back in, when was Working Girl? 1988 or something, Melanie Griffiths. And, and she was there power walking to work with her trainers. And it seemed like such a strange thing to do. And now, you know, I wear, I used to wear trainers to walk to work and then change my footwear. And then I got to the point thinking, well, why am I changing my footwear? Why don't I just wear trainers? It's far more comfortable. So, now I just wear them all the time. And it actually, it is a sort of badge of honor for me. And it's been mentioned in in Hansard by um, Lillian Greenwood. Andy Burnham will talk about how important it is to see people walking in their trainers. So, there has been a real a real shift in that. That's really, that's really interesting. I didn't realize that it was working girl and it was all that time ago. That's made me feel horribly old. Um, um, but, uh, that's really interesting. I just to developing this um, again, this is a bit of a London story again. I always apologize on a weekly basis that we, we're, we're always banging on about London, but it is the big beast here. Um, is there, uh, and this is applicable to other, um, uh, metropolitan areas as well. Would there be an argument? Have you ever discussed with TFL, for example, to make it much more clear on their signage and on their maps, uh, that there is a readily accessible, completely free and eminently achievable walking option for so many of the journeys you're about to undertake. Is that something that um, has ever been discussed or mooted? You know, you, you could get on the tube. On the other hand, you don't have to. Yeah, it, it has been. I mean, and certainly the the legible London sign totems that you might have seen around the city, they were largely put in by TfL to encourage people to walk short distances, largely to alleviate overcrowding on the tube network, the sort of journeys that you mentioned. So, those totems are put in in a way that they are orientated in the direction that you are facing. And then they have the walking isochrones of where you can get to in five minutes, 10 minutes. If you're a planner background like me, it confuses you like crazy because sometimes north is north is down at the bottom and south is up at the top. And I find that far more confusing. But for most people, are not very good at north being north you know, it's meant it's meant to help them walk and, and help to help show those journeys. And TfL has actually done done great work starting back from when they were working during the 2012 Olympics, trying to get people to travel by different ways. So there is now a tube map equivalent that shows in walking time how long it takes to travel between tube stations, how many steps it is between tube stations. But the difficulty is actually getting that information out there because for many people, particularly outside of London, so many people just rely on the tube map. It's a fixed network. You know, people don't even people from outside of London don't even want to catch buses in London because they're fearful they'll end up in the wrong direction. Whereas people think they understand the tube network. But I think the the big change is with some of the um, travel apps. So, you know, apps like City Mapper, for example, I think are brilliant and actually better than TFL's own own journey journey planner because you know City Mapper puts a it puts walking first. It tells you the time and it compares the time to different modes. 
you know, it can tell you if it's, you know, if it's raining, which is the route you'll, you know, you will stay driest. It tells you how many calories you burn. You know, it's a really good source of information and you've got it with you all the time. So, it takes away that fear of, of getting lost. And I think there's a lot, I think there's scope to improve those apps by adding things like air quality or, you know, greener routes or in points of interest. So, it is changing. TFL, I think, are, are, are working hard to try and make it better, but it just takes a long time to change people's behavior. And Susan, what are the measures that, you know, are most pro-pedestrian or can make the biggest impact to people who are walking for their for their short journeys. I think a lot of people you mentioned at the start with the with the example in Spain of pedestrianisation um, wanted to mention that where I'm based uh, near Coventry, uh, Coventry actually had the first um, pedestrianised shopping centre in Europe in the 1950s. Just thought I'd get that in there. Um, but but pedestrianisation um, is is obviously something people think, oh, straight away, well, that's good. Um, but of course, you've got different types of pedestrianisation. You've got pedestrianisation where people drive to then be a pedestrian, um, which, which you know, is possibly not that that helpful. And then obviously recently we've seen things like low traffic neighbourhoods, which benefit cycling and walking. Um, I know that Brian Deegan and others are very, uh, myself actually, are very interested and very um, favoured towards sort of side road zebras that we see in, um, mm-hmm. in in continental Europe, which makes walking, you know, more, less interrupted and easier, et cetera. What are the kind of, I know there'll be no, you know, silver bullet, but what, what are the kind of measures that we can start to see in towns and cities that would be more pro people pro pedestrian mm-hmm. i mean i think there's there's two different two main different types you've got things that make the walking environment better by focusing on walking facilities if you like um but actually i think the thing that has the most impact will be lowering speed limits so having 20 mile an hour speed limits having those low traffic neighborhoods reducing the amount of car parking in um town center city centers high streets um, and actually having a form of, of national road pricing. I think those are the things because th- those are the things that would actually make people in cars on short journeys think, do I need to make that journey? And if you can take out those short car journeys, and, and again, yes, quoting London stats, for which I apologize, but London has the best data sets in many of these things. You know, One in seven car journeys in London is shorter than a kilometer. You know, A car journey shorter than a kilometer just doesn't make sense for the majority of trips. One in three car journeys in London is shorter than two kilometers, you know, barely longer than a mile. So it's those things that would actually get rid of those very short car journeys that could be replaced by walking trips or by cycling trips that would make for a nicer walking environment. Yes, it's also important to widen footways, have street trees, have benches, have all of those facilities that make walking better and nicer, but actually it's reducing the dominance of car traffic because that's one of the big disincentives for people walking because it makes it unpleasant. And pavement parking. Pavement parking is 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 such a problem in, in most areas in the UK. And it's 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 what I describe as transport gluttony. You know, it's just it's it's cars just taking over the footway. And if it isn't cars taking over the footway, it's signage or it's litter rubbish it's you know it's it's all sorts of stuff get dumped on the footway i suspect laura's going to come in with a really articulate and expert question but i'm going to let her do that in a second but um susan i just there's something I, I i really was curious about and i just didn't understand what you meant so can i just ask you you mentioned was it national road pricing or, or something what what's yes. that that sounds interesting i don't know anything about that what's that that, I mean, it's not something we, we have at the moment, but it would be a scheme whereby if you wanted to use the roads, you would have to pay to, to do so. So, we have – it's a bit like the congestion charging scheme in London, which is called congestion charging, but it isn't. It's actually just a road pricing scheme. So, it would be something similar to that that could be applied nationally um, that would really just – because when people drive their cars, they tend to think – they might think about the fuel cost. If there's a parking cost, they might think about the par- you know the, the, that side of it. But actually, the fixed costs of motoring are so high, buying a car, insuring it, you know, um, the MOT, all of those fixed things are so high, the marginal costs of using it are really low. So, once you've bought a car, you're going to use it as much as possible for every journey almost to justify the purchase. And one of the things that concerns me is that every year we have more and more cars. There's something like 37 million vehicles in the country now, but we're actually using them less and less. The average car used to do about 12,000 miles a year. Now it does 8,000 miles a year, about 20 20 miles a day. 
And this is why you get the, the, the situation that the majority of the average car is parked for 23, 20, 23 hours a day or 96% of its time. There's nothing else we spend thousands or even tens of thousands of pounds on. And then we expect to store it on public space. You know, and so if you know, if we could reduce the amount of parked cars on our streets, those spaces could be take could be used for cycling, could be used for walking, could be used for children playing, for planting. You know, all of those nice things. Well, why do why do people expect if they have their own private car, they can store it for free, or for very low cost, on the highway? We've got the ridiculous situation in my own borough in Islington where if you've got, if depending what type of car you've got, but for most cars, it's cheaper to get a car permit to park your car on street than it is to get a bike permit to park in a bike hanger. It costs, I think it's 100, 104 pounds a year to park in a bike in a bike hanger. And if you've got some classes of car, it's cheaper to park a car. I mean, where is the sense in that? Um, I dread to think um, by those metrics what it would cost to store a pair of shoes on the streets, probably a thousand pounds a year. Um, yeah, it, we were we were just we were saying before about how um, how planning poli- road planning policy is all about. You know, it's very much a sort of cars first policy, and although pedestrians get infrastructure a lot of the time, it's often. Um, quite long-winded. You get two-stage crossings, which are the sort of bane of anyone wanting to get across a large road. You have to wait for two phases of traffic to get um, across. And just and and I'm also conscious that now we're having all this pop-up infrastructure. We've got um, you know pavement widening that kind of comprises of those solid block, like plastic blocks. They're like yeah. big Lego-y type things that are joined together. And so, you know, you, I, I've got one just near me actually. And if you, you, there's no way of crossing basically that whole section of expanded pavement. So that kind of reduces permeability. You can't just cross in the middle. You have to like get to either end. So there's obviously issues with, you know, with that as well. I'm just wondering one, if you feel like planning policy is changing towards pedestrians outside of London um, and also what you would like to see with pop-up infrastructure in terms of making it better for pedestrians? I, th- I think, I mean, it's changing in terms of the language, which is good. The fact that you've got people like Grant Shapps actually saying the words active transport and mentioning walking and cycling, although, again, the DFT nearly always talks more about the cycling side of it, not not the walking side. Um, and so there, there is a change at national level. I think the bigger change or the more impactful change is likely to come at the city level or at the regional level. And the fact that you know places are now beginning to have walking plans. You know, London had its first walking plan in 2018. I think it was. Greater Manchester had its its walking and cycling sort of action plan. So it is the fact that it's actually appearing on policy is a, a step in the right direction, every, every pun intended. Um, it's actually following it through because most people will not disagree with making things nicer for walking and cycling. It's sort of warm, fuzzy words. And yeah, yeah, we want to make it better. When push comes to shove and it actually means doing something that might take away some parking places, then it becomes a, a very different argument. Um, so I think there's a lot more scope. And I think now we're almost starting to see some cities competing for the good things that they can do for making streets better for people. And I think it is changing that language. So we don't talk about roads being closed because that's always a a red rag to the motoring bull. You know, we talk about prioritizing streets, making streets for people. And I was talking to a former colleague of mine um, who is now advisor to the deputy mayor of Milan, where they've been putting in a lot of these people streets. And, you know, he was saying it is about being bold. It is about having a focus on what people are doing it for Milan, they are being encouraged by what other cities are doing. It's giving them sort of strength and power. And they said there they pedestrianized 10 streets in the last two weeks. And he said that's more than they've done in the last 10 years. So there are there are changes happening. Um, in terms of uh, in terms of re obviously we're talking about reprioritizing road space, but in terms of changing the the hierarchy um, of of our streets, there's always you talk about pavement parking, which we can all agree that we, we we hate. And if you ask, you know, people if they hate it, then they'll probably go, oh, yeah, that's really bad if, you know, people can't get past in a wheelchair or with a push chair or, or whatever. But then people still do it like loads. Um, so 
uh, and normal people do it. It's not just like horrible people, like normal okay. people just pop into the chip shop to get the family tea and stuff, do it. Um, how do we change the fact that when people park outside their houses, they'd rather park on the, the pavement and give less space to pedestrians so that they can not hinder motor traffic? How do we get them to see the the the, the kind of diagram? Is it purely like, will it just be with a massive stick of parking, you know, uh, park pavement parking um, laws, uh, enforcement, et cetera? Or do you think there's something in like the moral compass of our society that we could actually think about vulnerable road users as vulnerable road users? Or do you think that's just like way too much for humans to cope with? I think it's both. I mean, I think the first thing needs to be that it should be illegal and that it needs to be enforced. Um, and it, it isn't just that it is a, you know, it creates um, an inconvenience. You know, for some people, it is the difference between being able to proceed along a footway or not. So for certain groups of people, it creates, you know, huge difficulties. And also it damages the footway. You know, footways are not constructed to take the weight of vehicles and our vehicles are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, one in three vehicles sold now is an SUV. You start putting these heavy beasts and also electric vehicles because they weigh more. If they start being parked on the footway, they will destroy the footway over time. And that will actually add to even more problems. It will add to cracking. It will add to damage, which again is then a trip hazard and it is costly to repair. So it isn't just a, this is an inconvenience. So I think it, it needs the legal support of it of, of this being an offence and it being enforced. And sometimes it is it is explaining to people. Um, you know, if you say, well, actually, you can't get a double buggy pass there, or you can't get a wheelchair. Some people are like, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. I think some people genuinely think they're being responsible by parking on the footway because they're leaving more space in the carriageway and they don't they see it from the driver's perspective you know we always see things through our, through our own image we design in our own image and they think oh yeah i'm doing I'm, I'm doing other motorists a favor and they don't think through the consequences of people on foot and the number of people i've spoken to particularly new dads you talk to new dads they are the most passionate people about walking they suddenly realize why drop curbs are there because they're out there with buggies experiencing the the, the, the built environment in a way they never have before. I've had a couple of times when I've been on cr and crutches. And again, you suddenly realize how short crossing times are and you start to see the world from a different perspective. So I think it, it is both. It needs the enforcement because it is such a, such a serious problem. But also, I think, you know, in some cases, if you explain it to people, they do get it. Hmm. If you were to design your ideal street for for pedestrians what would what would it look like <laughs> um i mean i think if it was a neighborhood street it would be it would be a low traffic neighborhood um so there is access you know this isn't about being anti car it's about giving priority to people so there would be access but there wouldn't be through traffic there would be you know there would be wide footways but you know there wouldn't necessarily need to be cycle lanes cuz cyclists could ca could cycle in the, in the, in the carriageway because there would be low traffic there would be greenery, there would be benches, um, there'd be all those nice things. And it, they would it, streets would be a place then for people to be, to congregate, as opposed to, you know, the, the sort of the road where you just pass through. So nice. it, it would be an attractive place where people want to be. Nice wavy lines, Susan. I'm thinking that the road just doesn't look straight necessarily. Be nice to be bendy, wouldn't it? <laughs> Some bendy, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of that is dictated by the by the streets. I mean, you know, some of our streets are old, so it just depends on the shape of the houses. What it wouldn't be is a cul-de-sac. You know, I think the very worst in terms of planning is some of the sort of 1970s estates of cul-de-sacs, where you know, to get from point A to point B, you have to go around so many bends, and you know, it just take it takes forever. So for me, those those are the worst sorts. But it, you know, it it should be about a street where people want to be whether they are eight or whether they are 80, you know, it should be welcoming to everybody. And I think that's, that's, that's the real part is being, being inclusive about this. So for too long, our built environment has been built, designed by a certain demographic for a certain demographic. And just to, just to kind of finish off, um, Susan, uh, I think one of the things that I'm really interested in the narrative at the moment with temporary infrastructure and actually some work that Arup is doing uh, up in uh, up in Liverpool is trying to 
show people that this stuff is good for business. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. pedestrian pound, as Living Street say, and um, you know, yeah. having uh, having the economic benefit. I noticed that in Liverpool, you're currently um, installing some really nice parklets outside small businesses so that they can go and get their food and sort of sit out and, and restaurants can continue to trade. Um, those things are obviously for me, you know, they're not, they're not going to change the world overnight, but they are the kind of metaphors, aren't they? For people to go, ah, oh, actually, if we give more space to people, um, things will get better. Do you think that the low traffic neighborhoods are obviously one part of that, but how, you know, how do parklets fit into all of this and, and how can they, um, show normal people that actually space for people is people that buy things, not, not cars, basically. Thank you for asking me about that. I love parklets. I think parklets are amazing as, as Laura knows. Um, so yeah, as, as, as a firm, as an individual, I think they're incredible and they show the value that can come from one space that's typically occupied by a vehicle. So sometimes they can be for greenery and that's sort of how they largely how they came about. Um, I did some work a while ago saying that actually if we're putting in recharging infrastructure for electric vehicles, it shouldn't be on the footway. You create a recharge parklet and that can include recharging for electric bikes. It could be recharging for phones, seating, greenery. So you make something that benefits everybody. But the work that's being done in, in Liverpool, I'm really excited about. So Rotterdam has been doing something similar. Milan, again, is doing something similar. And it's actually saying that if you if you take out one of these parking spaces, you can replace it with something which is so much more valuable. And you're right, people who walk to town centres spend you know, 40% more than people who drive to town centres. The t- particular street in Liverpool where it's going in Bold Street you know, was, was an unpleasant street to walk down because of all the parked cars, the footways were narrow. It wasn't a place where you wanted to linger or where you wanted to be. It's a fantastic little street. It's full of independent tra- tra- um, traders. It has a, has a great cat cafe. Um, you know, it's a, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the cat cafe parklet. I think that could just be amazing. That would just be so cool. Um, oh but yeah, goodness. I think <laughs> it's, it just, it just shows, I think what value can come about. People will actually realize that it makes a better um, street for all the time. And I think hopefully we'll come to the point and think, well, why did we allow cars to park there? We can actually make so much better use of this space. Um, and we can have far more of an outdoor cafe culture. Yes, the weather isn't always great, but it's not as bad as most people think it is. So I think it's terrifically exciting. I think it's brilliant that Liverpool is taking the lead on this. Um, I think Liverpool is very happy to be taking the lead on this. And I'm sure that other cities will, will follow their example. Right. Well, um, I'm very pleased and um, uh, to introduce the next guest who I worked with uh, at the World Road Race Cycling Championships back in Harrogate, where it poured with rain for an entire week. Um, so, uh, and as soon as um, I brilliantly decided that we should do an episode about walking, um, pretty much the first name I thought of contacting was Carmen Rendell, uh, who uh, knows all about it in a very particular sense as well. So, Carmen, when we worked together, you were doing a a very different job, but I realised that that is in some ways a sideline to what you're really passionate about, which is um, Soul Hub. And you would describe yourself, well, do tell us what Soul Hub is, but you would, I think I'm right in saying, describe yourself as a walking therapist, or certainly what you do is, is walking therapy. Would that be right? That is right. Hi, Ned. Thank you. Um, yeah, so Soul Hub is the home of goodness, um, essentially a place for people to come to to kind of understand themselves better. Um, so we do like a whole host of stuff, including kind of workshops, events, retreats. Um, but one of the things I think that have kind of has kind of come about particularly more recently is walking. Um, and I think everyone in the pandemic has um, reaped the benefits of getting outside and doing a daily exercise and probably new for many of them is actually um, reaping the benefits of walking. So we came up with an idea kind of end of last year called Soul Walk. Um, so I've kind of branded my name myself a little bit, kind of the Soul Walker. Um, I'm an integrative therapist, which essentially means that I um, studied a whole bunch of different types of psychotherapy and bring it together, um, working with whatever shows up for somebody. Um, and the best 
way I think is to be out in nature um, and to walk slowly with someone and allow that kind of space and time for feelings and emotions to surface. So the benefit of doing that while walking and then with a therapist who can kind of hold the space or ask those pertinent or difficult questions um, for me kind of is a winning combination. It also means I'm not stuck in an office uh, or sitting there staring at somebody. I get to kind of walk every day myself. So it's perfect. So, I mean, before I allow uh, Adam and Laura to ask their sort of expert questions, um, j- just from my outsider's point of view here, Carmen, is there something, is it something to do with, it strikes me as, must be something to do with the lack of eye contact in walking and the non-adversarial kind of, I, I think in sometimes you call it in, in children. And, and if you observe children playing in nurseries, I think it's termed parallel play, isn't it? Where, yes. where two children will be playing with plasticine on, on, on a low desk, but not actually looking at each other, but communicating in a whole bunch of ways that is really productive. And is there something of that in what you're talking about? Would that be a way of approaching your work? Pa- parallel play, does that, does that even resonate in your world? Yeah, I think... I think for many of us, you know, when you actually, like we spoke about it, Ned, you said, when do you have your best conversations? You know, it's often out when walking with the dog or it's in a car sitting alongside somebody and people kind of start to reveal a lot about themselves that they might not necessarily say say when they're sitting and feeling interrogated by somebody. And therapy can sometimes feel like that. So it was something for me about kind of opening access to it, um, particularly for men who might struggle to sit and feel like they're having therapy, right? That actually it's just a conversation because really that's all therapy is. It's just exploring kind of, you know, the underlying emotions that are going on. Um, and then once you start walking, it's amazing what comes out of people's mouths. They themselves are often like, oh, I never thought of that or I never felt that or I didn't know that was what was going on. And suddenly you're almost just, you know, in the whole essence, just putting it out there in the world. Um, and once it comes out of the body, for me, is, you know, is a huge indicator of kind of letting something go. Um, so you're not containing it, you're not holding it in your emotions, you're not walking kind of, you can almost tell as soon as somebody turns up to come for a walk, kind of what's going on for them already, how they walk, you know, whether there's eye contact or not, what's awkward about them, whether they turn up in the right clothes or not for a rainy day, whether they've got the right shoes on, all those things are pretty indicative of what's going on for us, right? Um, and the... That's obviously part of the um, the, the psychology of of, uh, of human behaviour and eye contact and things like that. But in terms of actually walking as a as a kind of form of uh, I guess exercise and and the benefits that we might get in walking from our uh, on our own, how much of that plays into the kind of um, therapy benefits? I guess that you know being in fresh air, um, seeing things from a different perspective. You know, whenever I go for a walk, I'm always like. I've been doing this, like been down this road five times on my bike, and I've never noticed like that little thing up there. And how much of actual the 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 genre of walking supports the therapy that you do? Yeah, I think like everything in life, it's a contrast, right? So I also like to go cycling. I love running. You know, I love kind of the cardiovascular element of exercise, and I think there's something also can be very meditative about it. People use running for meditation, um, and this is almost just another form of just slowing things down. Um, you know, so our nervous systems are stressed, we're overloaded, and sometimes almost just the the real you know, just one foot in front of another. For me, almost the walking therapy is not necessarily, it's not about distance. It's not about where you're going. Even that in itself in a, a metaphor of kind of, you know, it's just, it's not about the destination. It's just about being. So sometimes it might be that we just go and sit on a bench. Um, so it's not necessarily always about the the exuberance of energy. Um, sometimes actually what we need is stillness. Um, so for me, almost the, the emotions um, come to the surface very often when we are still. So, and many people don't like to be still. And, and if you actually ask them why, it's like, well, even running sometimes, it's like, what are you running from? You know, because actually when you sit still, you go, oh God, that's when I feel angry. It's when I feel upset. It's when I feel <laughs> all the emotions we're trying to avoid, but that's where the answers are um, in feeling those emotions. But as you say, quite rightly, like you see the world in a, just in a different way. So just another mechanism to open things up. So it might be, you know, and I, the thing I've always find fascinating is things kind of show up in my world while we're walking that you wouldn't necessarily have, um, that kind of are linked to and synchronicity of kind of what we're talking about. 
So it might be sometimes I've been walking with somebody in a therapy session and there's been like a, a big penis on the floor or, you know, or something. <laughs> Honestly, a horse comes past and just dumps its stuff right next to you. And you and I use that in the therapy. It's like, well, gone. And so you, we're often talking about someone dumping on them or, you know, they want to go and dump their emotions somewhere and it just shows up. So it's always... Uh, amusing sometimes and sometimes difficult, but it's just very, it can be very playful as well. That's, that's amazing. I love that. <laughs> and I, I, I think there is something about just being outside and being um, kind of just being, having things pa- passing through a kind of space and, and just being able to, I don't know, maybe figuratively um, kind of walk through a problem if you like um and then and then like you say maybe go and sit somewhere um I know that I've kind of got out of the habit of going outside for walks every day and it and and I've kind of made a promise that I'm going to go out and walk every every morning I'm wondering what you think the the benefit if other people are in that situation they're like lockdown brain now can't be bothered you're stuck in the house um what uh, what kind of motivation for um for getting outside is there yeah. Is there evidence of the benefits it's going to have for people? Well, as in any other form of exercise, right? It's kind of, you know, as you say, almost like we kind of play on the words, you go outside and you breathe in the fresh air. You know, it's kind of that slowing down your breathing. So, you know, uh, emotionally kind of the reduction of um, stress. So we know kind of as soon as almost you step into nature and if you're not in nature, then it could be an urban environment. But that kind of just distraction. Um, so that you're away from the everyday, whether it's your relationships at home with family um, or the device or whatever it is, it's just a distraction to get away from that, to allow your whole nervous system to, to slow down. So, you know, we know that stress and uncertainty are rife at the moment for people. So, um, and we get caught up in the whole whirlwind of it and it's been able to break that cycle for ourselves. So even if it's a bit like, you know, couch to, you know, 5K or it's couch to 5K, you know, just a little bit each day. So get out, but even if it's five minutes, just to shift the emotion slightly. You know, there's a huge bunch of benefits around reducing your blood pressure, um, also increasing creativity. So if you are in an industry that wants new ideas, then actually, again, kind of getting outside and bringing new information into your brain um, or slowing the brain down to allow new information in um, is perfect. Walking is perfect for that. Do you anticipate a kind of in the corporate world or the business world a bit of a post-COVID reinvention of what uh, of what a meeting might mean, Carmen? Because you know, hitherto yeah. the meetings have happened in in breakout rooms or in for more enlightened companies, you know, beanbag areas or something like that, where people are kind of sat down. But uh, but a lot that needs must. I mean, I've actually done it. I don't operate in the corporate world, but but literally. Two days ago, I think I had a meeting um, that I didn't want to do on Zoom. And um, the person I wanted to have a meeting with was close enough f- to where I live for us to meet in Nunhead Cemetery and, and walk um, walk around for an hour and actually talk about, you know, work. Um, and I found it incredibly productive. And I think a lot of people will have had that experience. And I wonder whether that's something that can be taken forward into the rest of our lives. Henceforth. Well, first of all, you go to cemeteries. I do that too. <laughs> Nunhead's, are, Nunhead's an amazing cemetery. You really recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's also, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I used to work at Barclays Bank, so I'm kind of used to the corporate environment. And actually, when I reached out around soul walks and trying to look at corporate communities to do exactly that, take teams out and do it as a different way of connecting with the team. You know, one of my old bosses who's now um, nationwide, she said, well, we already do it. We go and we have our team meetings and my one-to-one, you know, down often in Bournemouth walking along the beach. Um, So I I think there is, you know, people are going to want to get a change also from sitting at home if we're working more from home. Um, and staring at Zoom or staring at the laptop. So to a certain extent, you then haven't even got that commute to get to work. So you need to break it up. So I think, you know, it's an amazing way to do meetings with each other. Um, and that it, there's there's a great story. I think it's like Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev and something like 1985, where, you know, there's that classic image of them hand, having a handshake on a walk um, and around almost like, you know, walks are... Uh, often using solidarity from marches, you know, that's a coming together of new ideas. It's kind of, uh, there's, you know, it's around changing the world, social display. There's lots of reasons why people come to walk together. 
Um, and if I think, you know, it's always been part of our history, right? Um, and yet it's free, it's cheap, it's beneficial for your health. And yet it's something that we we almost take for granted sometimes. And it's there on our doorstep for us to use. Um, I, I feel like uh, it might not be the forum for, for, I feel like opening up a little bit uh, as we have a therapist with us. Um, but no. I, I, um, I walk quite long distances um, but I think I've developed a negative association with walking because I often go and walk specifically to solve a problem or to do something at length. So what I often do, I, if you see me, I'll look like an antisocial person because I will have my headphones in and I will be talking to someone for an hour on the phone, especially during lockdown now, while I'm walking. And that's the best way for me to kind of have those difficult conversations and I often see it from things. But I think it's probably subconsciously made me have a more negative association of walking really. And I wonder whether a solution might be for me to walk, you know, I see people who walk daily. They, they make sure they just have a 10 minute walk every day because that's their thing. And I don't really have that. I just thought I'd mention it and wonder if you've got any advice while I'm here. Free advice, that it, Adam. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I look like a right title, don't I? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's, there's so many connotations with walking sometimes. It's like, I almost go, I'm not a rambler, you know, and yet I walked kind of, you know, the Camino to Santiago and, you know, I've got people go for different reasons. People go to release grief, to solve, as you say, solve problems, um, to get fit, to lose weight. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why we walk. Um, but I guess for you almost, well, I'm here in a positive that you resolve issues. Um, mm. And it's kind of almost flipping that for yourself that actually it's not a negative. It's actually like the it's, you leave with a great feeling because you've gone through maybe something that might be quite challenging um, and actually come out the other end. So it could be partly around the repositioning in your head um, for, for what you get from that, but also then maybe just changing it up. That sometimes you do go for a walk with music you could go for a walk with a walking meditation. Um, so you, if you feel uncomfortable about not having your headphones on, you could put something on that just is quite a bit more calming. Um, or if you're up for taking your headphones off and just seeing how that feels to kind of connect and see what's, what comes up in the emptiness. Um, because that is often, the, as I said earlier, that's the fear. It's that most of us fear what comes in the empty feeling and the quietness and the not knowing. Yeah. And we're in a, yeah, Adam, take, take, take your headphones knowing. off. Take your headphones off. What are you doing <laughs> walking with your headphones on? <laughs> Put some music on yeah. and sing. You know, see how that feels in your body. Yeah. Yeah. We've probably, um, well, um, sorry, Laura, do, do ask one last question, but then we probably, uh, we'll probably have to let Carmen go because we're a little bit done yeah. for time, but go on. Or Laura. I'm just going to say, I was going to say, I loved your, um, your, your question about, um, about walking meetings, Ned. I think that's such a fantastic idea. And of course it makes total sense in, you know, going forward, we're not going to, we're going to be in this situation for quite a long time where we're going to have to keep our distance from each other. But one thing I've been doing is, um, is, you know, meeting friends and going walking and, and yeah, I just, I think that's been quite an interesting, different activity. I personally love walking and I wonder if, uh, different conversations will come out of that situation where you're not sort of sat facing each other in a pub or in the someone's house and yeah it's, it's interesting isn't it yeah walking's going to become such a bigger part of our lives yeah completely and my favorite word for it is um with with one of my my older of my two kids um who's a university student now we me and me and her ever since whenever have been big fans of just walking and talking w with each other and we call it mooching uh that's our <laughs> word for it and then i discovered to my absolute horror when i reread um George Orwell's uh, Down and Out in Paris and London, that actually mooching had a different meaning back in the day. And it actually meant robbing people blind and being like a hood, sort of hoodlum. So I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, not going to use the word mooching anymore. But um, anyway, uh, well, I'm really glad we did a whole episode on, on um, walking. And I'm really glad uh, that we've managed to get Carmen's thoughts as well, because it's kind of inspiring, actually. Yeah. Both Susan and Carmen have really um, made, me, made me never want to ride a bike again and go, go everywhere on foot. Um, so... Carmen, all the best. I hope to see you soon. And thanks very much for joining us anyway. Thank you, guys. So you've been listening to Streets Ahead. Thank you uh, to our guests, Susan Claris and Carmen Rendell. 
thank you for listening as well. Uh, let us know what you think. We're at Pod Streets Ahead on Twitter. And finally, if you know uh, people that would like this uh, podcast, please do share it with them. And we'd be really grateful if you gave us a little review too, preferably a good one. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.